This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, July 10th, 2020, and I am Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Today we are having a discussion about systemic racism and discrimination in the federal workforce and ways to increase access and opportunity. As our nation grapples with conversations surrounding race, the entire Fed Talk family feels it is important that we reflect on how our federal workforce can be more representative of the people it serves and committed to addressing racial biases. We hope this discussion is a conversation starter on how to properly address these issues and highlight the work being done across the government to create a more inclusive federal workforce. Let me start by introducing our panel of guests. First, we welcome Alice Mercer. Alice is the chairperson of the Blacks in Government, also known as BIG, Standing Committee on Affirmative Employment and Equal Opportunity. Alice, thanks for being here. Thank you so very much, uh, Latasha, for having us and inviting BIG to this panel discussion. Of course. Next, we have Margaret Williams. Margaret is vice chair of the Senior Executives Association, also known as SCA, Board of Directors. Welcome, Margaret, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Well, thank you, Natalia, for having me. I'm excited about this conversation and the dialogue that we will have today. Finally, we have Chad Hooper. Chad is National President of the Professional Managers Association, also known as PMA. Welcome, Chad, and thanks for joining. Thank you, Natalia, for having us and inviting us into this dialogue. Before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that FedTalk is brought to you by FedPoint, previously known as Long-Term Care Partners, LLC. FedPoint administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. To learn more about them, visit FedPointUSA.com today. And to hear about their rebranding efforts, listen to our last FedTalk show with Joan Melanson from FedPoint. Now, before we dive in, I wanted to give all of you guys the chance to introduce your organizations because, you know, these conversations are so important and I want our readers to have a little bit of context about why you're here and why you guys are helping us facilitate this dialogue. So, Alice, I'm going to start with you and give you the opportunity to introduce Blacks in Government and some of the great work you guys are doing. Thank you so very much again for this opportunity. Before I start, I would also like to bring you greetings from our national president, the Honorable Dr. Doris Sorter, who was on, who um, gave me this assignment today, and I appreciate her for that. And then we have our board of directors, uh, chairperson, the Honorable Darlene Young. Blacks in Government uh, started in 1974 
2005 when 12 employees from the Department of Health, Education and Welfare decided, you know, enough is enough. We are having these type of systemic racism problems. So they formed Blacks in Government. And Blacks in Government was incorporated in 1976 as a nonprofit organization. Today we have over 6,000 members and we have 11 regions and some uh, chapters overseas. Our, pre we were founded on the basis of standing up for Blacks in government, that they be afforded the same rights as any other group in the government, and that they are not treated differently because of the color of their skin. We provide professional development. We work with our members um, to educate them on their rights and their responsibilities and to stand up for their rights and responsibility. For example, our goals and objectives are to be an advocate for equal opportunity, um, to eliminate the practice of racism and discrimination, to promote professional development in Blacks in government, to develop and promote programs to enhance the pride and educational opportunities, to be a mechanism to gather and disseminate information, and to be nonpartisan. So we are here to assist our members in being successful in the government. We um, have, like uh, Latasha said, several national committees. I chair the Affirmative Employment Equal Employment Opportunity Committee, and we educate, we empower, and we work with agencies and our employees, I mean, in our membership to address systemic racism. We have a now generation. That's for people under 40, that's coming up in the government, um, mentoring them and providing them a, a platform for them to be able to discuss issues that affect them. And then we have our legal legislative review chair who works with other like-minded agencies to uh, address systemic racism, such as the World Council of Mayors, the Historical Black Towns and Settlement, Settlement Alliance, the NAACP, Southern Christian Leadership, a uh, um, hundred black men, and many, many more. And that's just some of the nonprofit, but we also work with the enforcement agencies such as EEOC, the Office of Special Counsel, uh, MSPB, as well as the Office of Personnel Management. Thank you for giving me, providing me an opportunity to give an overview of being. Um, yeah, thank you for giving us that overview. I feel like a lot of people kind of can understand, you know, the role of an organization representing Blacks in government. But when you really hear about all that you guys do and all the areas of government that you are part of and this helping the new generation, it's so great to have some of that additional context about your organization because I think it's so important for understanding where you fit into this larger conversation. Um, next, Margaret, I wanna turn it to you to tell us a little bit about SCA. Well, well, hello everyone, I'm Margaret Williams. I'm the vice chair for the Senior Executives Association. And uh, a little bit of background is, um, since about uh, 2008, SCA has um, 
been uh, the capacity for uh, the directors and, and government and just looking at uh, how, how we will take all of our uh, initiatives to partner and represent senior executives across uh, this great nation, uh, provide a space for them to come in, continue to de develop, continue to partner, to continue to grow, to offer them additional uh, benefits and, and perks that senior executives should have access to outside of their federal agencies, a place that they can come together and give back and uh, mentor up and support uh, future leaders. And so SEA has worked on a number of initiatives uh, down through the years uh, that uh, where we are actually one of those agency uh, associations that uh, we are tapped for uh, the perspectives of the senior executive rank in terms of what's really happening within the federal work workspace. And those executives uh, contribute to a conversation that usually the uh, Congress will will hear our voice and allow us to uh, speak uh, pretty candidly around how, how do we bring about the change that's needed uh, in, in America and across the federal landscape. Yeah, I, SCA, I believe one of your slogans is like the voice of senior executives in government. And I really feel that. I think SCA takes all of these executives from across government and gives them one place where they can work together, share ideas, collaborate, and really make government better. Um, you know, the, anyone who listens to Fed Talk regularly knows we're a big fan of SCA's work. Um, and they also may be a little bit familiar with PMA. I know Chad's been here before. Chad, give us a little bit more information about PMA. Natalia, thank you so much. Hello, everybody. Um, we at the Professional Managers Association began operating in 1981. Um, we advocate on behalf of managers, management officials, and other non-union members um, uh, at the Internal Revenue Service. Um, so we have a big uh, emphasis on advocating for that management perspective um, as a labor organization. We also um, consult with agency leaders and executives um, on strategy and plans implementation, and we lobby the Congress on behalf of America's taxpayers, um, sometimes on behalf of frontline employees and, and most often um, on managers and the burden that managers face in administering the tax system. Yeah, and I think PMA is going to be really interesting in this conversation because you guys, the IRS is one of the government agencies that the public is most familiar with and the public engages with most often. And I know it's going to be a topic of conversation is how the impact of racism and discrimination seeps into public involvement and in, into those interfaces with the public. So Chad, really excited to have you on. We are right up against our first break. So you guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We'll continue our discussion with Alice, Margaret, and Chad right after a quick word from our sponsors. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltc feds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are just diving into our conversation about race and discrimination in the federal workforce. 
workforce. And I think one of the most important things to do when we start this conversation is defining some of these terms. We've heard them a lot in recent weeks, you know, systemic racism, discrimination, what are these things? And I think it's important to have a kind of common foundation of understanding what these mean to some of the people at the table. So I'm going to start with this big term, systemic racism. And um, Margaret, I'm going to give you the chance to kind of give us your perspective on what that means. So systemic racism actually was derived from institutional racism and it includes a complex array of anti-Black practices. The, un the unjustly gained political economic power of whites the continuing economic and other resource inequalities along racial lines, and that white racist ideologies and attitudes created to maintain the rational and rationalized white privilege and power. This is based on some of Joe Vegan's research, which states society developed systemic racism, which is a sociological theory for understanding the role of race and racism in the United States. It's also a part of our historic, the historical evidence that the demographic statistics that uh, the theory asserts that the United States was founded in racism as the con constitution classified black people as the property of whites. This legal recognition of slavery is a cornerstone of a racist social system in which resources and rights enjoyed by white people and unfairly denied black people. So rooted in this foundation, systemic racism today is composed of intersecting, overlapping, and codependent racist institutions, policies, practices, ideas, and behavior. As such, it is a theory that accounts for individual, institutional, and structural forms of racism. Yeah, I, I think some of the things that you really hit on there were this idea that our country was unfortunately has some really racist origins, and that continues to feed into our everyday life. And, you know, the federal workforce is not immune to that. I'm curious, Alice, Chad, do you have anything to add to that definition um, and how you think it, you know, plays in? I would agree with Margaret. It is historical based, but the sad part about it now, um, a lot of places or a lot of uh, agencies have accepted it as the norm, especially, you know, being an EEO practitioner for 40 plus years, when you would talk to someone, they would say, oh, well, that's just how they are. Or that didn't happen. Instead of looking at it, and listening to what the person that was bringing the allegation to say. So the challenge that I see with systemic racism is how do we change the mindset? And I know we're gonna talk a lot about this later during the interview, but to Margaret spot on, showing that this is a, a learned behavior that has been in our country since it started. Yeah, there's because it's been in this country so long, I think, and you're right, we're going to talk more about it. There's almost like an apathy towards it. Like, oh, it's just part of our history. And part of the reason why having these conversations is so important is because I think we need to identify it in order to start peeling back those layers of institutional and systemic racism. Now, 
when we talk about how racism interjects within systems, I think that's a little bit different than how individuals face and experience discrimination, which is why I think defining that is also important. And Alice, given your background within EEO, can you provide us with a little bit of a foundation for defining discrimination? Discrimination, you know, is very, it's just that you just are, you just treat people unjustly or you're, you, you treat them with prejudice because of they're different. The color of their skin that you feel as here again, as um, Latasha said, I'm sorry, as Margaret said, Privilege. You are privileged. You are better than the 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 person that you are discriminating against, and you are entitled to things that they are not, um, irregardless of the merits or being qualified for it. So, and it and it raises its head in every aspect of our segment, in the workplace, in housing, in the justice system. So, yes just because of the color of a person's skin. Yeah, I think- Or their religion. And, and let me say, and I say that because we're talking about systemic racism, but it also goes over into other categories other than race. It could be because of their national origin, because they have a disability, their age. It can be go across uh, the legal aspect as well as the illegal aspect. Some things that are not covered under law, but they're still discrimi dis discriminatory in nature. And I think one of the things that you just mentioned about how it's discrimination really comes into play when you take merit out of the equation. And we hear so much in the federal workforce about merit principles. You know, we have the Merit System Protection Board that is meant to defend merit in our federal government, but we still see these issues of discrimination coming in. And it it really, it, you no longer have a federal workforce that's working based on who is the best and most able to deliver services to the American people, but instead you're focusing on and you know denying people opportunity based on these other issues that we discriminate against. And it does go beyond race. And even though this conversation is going to be predominantly focused about race, um, I know we're gonna also discuss some of these other forms of discrimination as well. So we've, we've kind of defined discrimination, we've defined systemic racism. There is no denying that just in the last month, our country has been grappling um, with these conversations in a major way. And we've really been confronting them, I think, in a major way. And I would like to examine the impact of these issues in our federal workforce. And to start with that, Chad, um, you work closely with the IRS, and I think this is a great time to kind of give a little parallel. As our nation grapples with questions of race following the terrible murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many more, how do you feel your agency has been responding and, you know, helping our workforce grapple with these conversations? Thank you, Natalia. You know, the civil service, um, is very hesitant to have this conversation has been our experience. I think that um, conversations um, that track with the um, like sort of EEO protected classes um, have chill discussion 
um, among staff and between managers and staff for fear of being accused of being racist or ageist or ableist. Um, and so I found that, you know, when we learned of George Floyd's murder, that my agency said nothing internally. We have a very large population of people of color. Um, we have large urban populations um, that are affected by the aftermath of uh, that murder. And I, I, I found it very difficult to, to remain silent within my agency about that, um, acutely aware that I am a white man. Um, but somebody needs to speak out um, on behalf my, my own staff were hurting um, and, and that lack of empathy, I think that pervades sometimes our work um, became very clear to me. So we um, in PMA um, sent out a statement um, after giving the agency an opportunity internally to do so. Um, and we were sad to see that it was took about a week um, after George Floyd's murder um, for the commissioner to issue a, a one sentence about you know us all needing to come together with a hyperlink to the Secretary of the Treasury statement, which contained two paragraphs. One was about like, we all need to come together and the other paragraph chastised people for looting. And I was disgusted by that, honestly. Um, it was, a, it was a, sad, a sad thing to see. So we in PMA feel that um, anti-racism work is a prerogative of IRS managers, um, and that means executives as well. And we have taken this up in our FY21, like that we just started uh, a week ago, um, as our advocacy plan internally. Um, I cannot have members of my association um, supporting these uh, racist structures internally. I cannot have them remaining silent. And certainly I directly called on my white peers to speak out and to name it when they see it. Um, and I think we need to see more of that in my agency and across the government. I completely agree. And I think some of the things you just hit on, um, you know, the silence is at this point a part of the problem. Um, and that's one of the reasons we're having this conversation today. Of course, in the last month, this has been front and center. But the truth is, issues of discrimination have been going on for a long time. And this is just highlight being highlighted in the news right now. But Alice, I wanted to give you the chance to speak to how this, you know, discrimination and racism seep into the federal workforce, not just right now, but sometimes all the time. Um, and I know that that's why Blacks in Government was created was to combat this. And it's been a consistent theme. So if you want to talk a little bit to how you know, racism injects itself into our federal workforce. I was just sitting here thinking about what Chad said and it resonated with me because if you are a African-American and you speak out, then you're seen as basically from a stereotypical manner as an angry black person. You are a mad black woman or you are a angry um, black male because you raise the issue. But on the other hand, if your counterpart raises the same issue, then it's the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, they are um, a team player. They're questioning. Uh, They're seeking to be understood and not be uh, ne from a negative standpoint. In the federal sector, unfortunately, 
African-Americans and, um, and other minorities suffer from this. If they're in a meeting and they can make a statement and they're just glossed over. So we talk about diversity and inclusion. You bring them or you bring minorities and Afri minorities to the table, but you don't acknowledge their commitment or their involvement. You'll let someone else come back about two or three minutes after they have said something and say the exact same thing. And you offer that other person the praise for that. That's one way. People tend to be more comfortable with people who look like them, who think like them. So mm -hmm. when you think about the selection process, it's definitely not based on merit. It could be based on favoritism or just being comfortable with whom um, I feel comfortable with. And so they don't really look at the merit of it. Then you look at it, if you raise uh, the issue, then you are opening yourself up for reprisal retaliation. What we have found out that agencies need to provide a safe zone for employees to raise their issues or allegations without fear of reprisal retaliation. For the last 15 years, reprisal retaliation has been the main finding of complaints of discrimination within the EEOC arena. Because when people raise their allegations, uh, they are reprised and retaliation, retaliated against. Wow. I, and I think that's so important to hit on because it is the difference between promoting diversity and promoting and actually countering systemic racism. Like diversity sounds great, but you can have people at the seat of the table, but if they're not being respected and being heard, then diversity is nothing more than checking a box. And I know that when we, we have to get to our next break right now, but when we come back, I want to talk with Margaret a little bit about how this seeps into leadership and why there are some disparities in leadership. Um, we are right up against our second break, but when we get back, we're going to continue this conversation. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I am here with Alice Mercer from Big, Chad Hooper from PMA, and Margaret Williams from SCA. We have been talking a lot about discrimination and systemic racism in the federal workforce, and I think that that is 
particularly visible when we're talking about the leadership core in the federal workforce and the SES. Uh, currently, the non-SES portion of the federal workforce is about 18% Black, but the SES itself is less than 11%. And the numbers for Hispanic and Latinos in the federal government for you know, some the native personnel are even lower. And Margaret, I want to give you the chance to talk a little bit about why that might be and what some of the problems we're seeing in the SES are. So one of the first things I think that is necessary is to take a look at, at the demographic that is the majority in, in terms of leading and who, who has those opportunities, who are, who are really are the who are those people that are having the opportunity to lead in, in that 1% group. And I would say that if you look at, at uh, OPM's data, you'll find that it says uh, Caucasian men and women are in, filling that space well. Therefore, we do need to diversify that group. And how do we really do that? And we need to feed the uh, feeder pipelines with more diverse groups of people so that we have prepared people to lead at those those levels within and across the federal government. But though the, the diverse groups have to be seen as a viable group to lead at that level. And I would say that it, you know that it has to be a level of a systemic piece going on across the federal landscape, because if it was not an issue, you would have more diversity and inclusion uh, at the top already. And we probably would not be sitting here today having this conversation. And with that being said, how, how, what do we need to do to begin to change it? We have to look at these steps and the processes that are currently in place and, and do a, a quick pivot, um, if I will say that, a quick pivot from past practice, current thinking, and, and shift to a process and a framework that says, Yes, we have leaders that are very ambitious about this topic. Right now it's a hot topic and they're ambitious to get out and, and, and make a statement. But how many of those leaders are re really ready and prepared to close the gap and call into action the actions that are necessary to diversify and change the senior executive frames uh, across all of the federal agencies that there are processes in place that says that, no, we're, we're not looking for people to check a box or to say that we gave five people an opportunity, but we are saying as an American public, the American people deserve the best leaders to lead this great nation. And I would say to you, that has not happened yet, but I'm very hopeful that we are on a trajectory that will get us there with working with people such as yourself, Alice, Chad, and, uh, in having these kind of conversations uh, to put light on, on those hidden areas that people really want to kind of shy away from having those difficult conversations. But the first thing we must do is just begin to begin to acknowledge it and then begin to come up with an, a, a plan to attack, address, and annihilate anything that is associated with anything related to systemic racism within the federal landscape. 
Yeah, and I am really excited in the next half of the show to focus on those pathways and what that pivot actually looks like. But before we do that, I think there's an interesting dynamic at play here. We don't just talk about how this impacts the federal workforce, but we also talk about how it impacts how the federal workforce engages with the public. And Chad, you know, like I said earlier, the IRS is one of those agencies that engages with the public more than any so some would say more than any other agency. And I want to know how that, how these dynamics impact that interaction. Thank you, Natalia. And so I think that the IRS is uniquely positioned um, to have very, I feel like very clear examples of how systemic racism pervades society. Um, I know at the Last year, about a year ago, I think it was in April of 2019, our commissioner, um, Charles Reddick, was called before Congress um, to speak about, in part, the enforcement outcomes um, of the IRS and how um, communities of color in particular um, suffer a very high rate of examination and collection action. And what are the reasons behind that? You know, the commissioner denied that the IRS uses race-based factors and determining audit selection criteria, which is true, um, but that's a, an example of, of a leader who's looking at the wrong part of the problem, right? We're not taking action in the IRS to be sure that our enforcement outcomes look like the demography of the United States. What we're doing is saying that, well, we're not, you know, we don't see color. That's effectively what we're saying, which is not helpful. Um, that comes from the IRS's lack of appropriate funding. Um, we can't, uh, we don't have the resources to examine the returns of high wealth individuals at the same rate as we can someone who has a very simple financial life. Maybe they have one job, maybe they don't make a lot of money, so they qualify for a, a very generous um, refundable tax credit. Um, that's a very easy, like sort of low hanging fruit examination. And so, the IRS, with its very limited enforcement funds, deploys them to maximize the return on those funds. So it, we unintentionally oversaturate communities of color with these notices. Um, and I think that that's a very clear example of systemic racism in our society. People of color are examined at a greater rate um, and experiencing collection actions from the IRS at a greater rate than, than whites. Um, and because of longstanding issues in our society about how wealth was distributed, um, that we also had, like breaking out of race just briefly, our association identified in February of this year, which I, I can't even believe I'm saying, um, that the largest customer service operation in the IRS, there are several, um, was not offering um, multilingual assistance to taxpayers in the United States, um, which has been a requirement of our service for years um, as, as through law and through executive orders um, that we offer this kind of service because there are plenty of Americans who don't speak English at home. Um, we were only offering in that customer service function the opportunity to work with a translator um, if you were calling from another country. So we identified this, we found out that the IRS had paid civil rights discrimination settlements to taxpayers who weren't offered this reasonable accommodation. Um, when we approached the customer service apparatus to suggest that they um, correct this wrong, we were met with like uh, an almost like a violently xenophobic resistance. 
um, that I really truly did not understand in the face of showing our own IRS policies and in demonstrating to them that this is service that we provide in every other aspect of the IRS, just not on the phone when somebody needs help. Um, it was very startling to be met immediately with resistance um, on this. And it wasn't like, how can we help people? It was to explain why my suggestion that we offer translation services is out of, like I'm out of my mind. Um, we did prevail, and last month the IRS conceded and revised how it answers all domestic phone calls. And so now every American taxpayer, regardless of their national origin, can get service in the language they most comfortable speak. You know. Um, anyway, so a, a myriad of issues. And I think that that really highlights when we talked just at the beginning about the definition of systemic racism and this idea that we were, as a country, were built by white men. And to this day, we continue to cater our services to white men as if they are the majority of the public, they are the majority of the public, but as if they are the only members of the public. And we see that seep into these issues of who we audit and what language services we provide. And we continue, it, it really is about peeling back those layers of discrimination and systemic bias. And you, I think what you just hit on talking about the multilingual support is that this does go outside of just race. And I know you have seen that at the IRS and of course it is an issue across government, but Chad, could you speak a little bit to how you've seen these issues outside of just racial tensions? Oh, sure. You know, we in PMA have been focused also on how you know, we, we're advocating actually the IRS to conduct like a workplace audit of its culture um, because these biases um, that, that are implicit to every single person, I am not immune to this and I don't want to ever say that I'm not. Um, but those of us who walk around with an implicit bias, you know, we aren't, um, that's not only impacting people who have immutable differences like race, um, but it also comes out in how we talk about different religions, um, and how we um, talk about um, people in the queer community. Um, and so I can see we have, we struggle um, internally, even with just um, white supremacist workplace culture issues, right? Like our executives in the IRS meet a white stereotype of what it means to dress professionally or speak professionally. And we hold our employees accountable um, to job elements on written and verbal communication that are like a, a white focused definition and acceptance of grammar and word choice and how and how things are written. All of this leads to racist outcomes um, in ways that I think it's uncomfortable for people to talk about because, you know, if I, you know, in the federal government, it's very easy to talk about, you know, someone who's always late. Um, and it's hard to hear that our culture values timeliness. And by our, I mean, white culture values timeliness over other cultures that have like uh, sort of different relationships to time. Um, just little tiny things that um, we accept as sacrosanct um, and universally applied truths to the human experience that actually are forms of white supremacy at work. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And I think now is when we're going to pivot a little bit to how we can improve this and what improving this looks like. And Margaret, one of the things you mentioned is that it comes from the top. There is a leadership element of this that must be involved. And as we finish this segment and head into the next one, which is going to be entirely focused on paths for improvement, Margaret, do you have any insight on how leadership can be improved and what improving leadership looks like, what those first steps are? Well, the way SDA and as we're continue to move forward and look at, at um, all levels within the federal government, how, how do we support those levels? How do we identify areas of opportunity uh, to help foster the type of change that we need? And, and, and many of those are based on, you know, identifying past biases, looking back at, you know, merit promotions across the federal government, and also making recommendations around opening up that pipeline, as I stated earlier, to say that you need those feeder pipelines to be more diverse, to say that you know um, some organizations might have uh, good numbers of diversity at the lower levels within their agencies. But my, my recommendation is just to look at, as those levels go up, then what, you know, let's look at it by the numbers. How many people are at your higher levels uh, as they matriculate through uh, the GS schedules or any of the other schedules that uh, are used within the uh, federal landscape to identify people who are ready now to go into some of those positions. And I love what Chad stated about uh, a white supremacy, so to speak, a language and rather be oral or written language and um, to bump up against uh, some of that. How, how do you how, how do you identify the right people regardless of how they speak? Their dialect a little different from mine. So to me, embracing differences and, and, and a lot of it to me begins in the mind as, as we begin to build, uh, begin to look for the, a different type of leader. And that starts with someone saying, hey, that old paradigm that we use that they had to speak this way, they had to dress this way, they have to walk this way, they have to talk this way. I'm expecting them to have gone to this college or university. All that's out the window because now we want to provide the American public, I, at the end of the day for me, it always goes back to service, right? Mission and the American public. How do we serve? I believe that when you get the best people in those leadership um, positions, you will then begin to serve the American public the way that they deserve to be served. And the mission will get accomplished on time and within the budget. And I think that that's where it all begins. And until they begin to take a hard look at the core numbers that are out there and begin to diversify, there are many statistics out there that says that diverse groups outperform any other group. And if you look at the data, and I'm a researcher, I look at the data and the data speaks and I wanna go by the numbers and I'm looking forward to uh, the great work that, that is ahead of us. I think that's a great place for us to stop here for our final break. And when we come back, we're going to finish up this conversation with really how we improve. You guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent 
treatment should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering our last segment of the show. We have been discussing racial issues and discrimination in the federal workforce. I want to talk a little bit about the opportunities for Blacks in government, where they can go when they're experiencing this, some of these issues, and how we can improve them. And Alice, I'm going to turn it to you to talk about what you guys do in BIG with the Affirmative Employment and Equal Employment Opportunity Programs and some of the forums that you guys have created to address these issues. Thank you. Uh, yes, in BIG, we take a proactive approach in addressing um, racism and systemic discrimination. So what we have, we have several programs that we work that to assist our memberships um, as well as agencies. One of them is called the Racial and Despair Treatment Form. And in that um, form, we provide an opportunity for one of any one of our chapters or a group to reach out to Blacks in government with systemic issues. We work with them and the agency um, to come to the table and work it out. We look for a win-to-win situation. A lot of times people are afraid of reprisal retaliation, so they would prefer to come together collectively as a group so they won't be centered, you know, singled out. So that's what we do there. We, like you said, we work with the, the group that comes with the allegations as well as the agency that um, they're bringing the allegations against. We also have what we call the complaint advisory training, which is we have complaint advisors throughout all of our 11 regions. We train them to go in and assist our membership or non-members with complaints of discrimination from an individual perspective. We do not represent them. We explain the process. We explain what is needed. We explain um, what happens during the investigation, um, what is meant by um, burden of proof, uh, the different types of discrimination that they may encounter. We conduct monthly uh, webinars uh, for people to on various issues around um, racism and discrimination. We also have what we call the complaint, the agency compliance and review. And we take the agency's M, uh, affirmative employment program uh, reports such as the MD 715, the 462 of the FIOR, and we work with our chapters at the grassroots level to understand exactly what that re those reports are saying, if there are triggers or barriers to African-Americans, minorities, and help them work with their agencies to develop uh, a path forward to correct those triggers and barriers that they may be experiencing. We also, uh, doing our um, national training conference, we normally have the EEO Institute. But this year, our um, national 
Training Institute was postponed due to COVID-19. However, we still will be doing the EEO Institute, but it will be done virtually. And we work with our enforcement agencies to come in and talk about what's going on. Earlier this year, we had a forum in DC and the Office of Special Counsel came in and talked about the Hatch Act with all that's going on in this political climate and what people's rights and what they should do as federal employees or not do was discussed there. We intend to have that again. We will have a, um, a, a webinar with EEOC, asked OFO, what's going on in the federal government? What's new? We have provided um, workshops for our state and local government employees as well about the EEO process, where they go, and how do they look at their affirmative employment um, reports as well and work with their perspective agencies as well. So here again, we are taking a proactive um, approach with this. We believe knowledge is power. We equip them with the tools and the skills and the abilities in order to know what their rights are, how to stand up for their rights and assist them in um, being successful in the government as well as assist them in elevating their concerns to their agencies. And like I say, it's a very, we work collaboratively with our membership, our chapters, our regions, as well as with the agencies. Knowledge really is power. And I think really that first step is helping people address their biases and then helping people of color in government know what their avenues are. And it's so incredible that BIG is taking such a proactive approach in making that possible. I know SCA as well is a very interested in one of the things we've talked about, increasing participation of people of color and minorities in leadership in government. And Margaret, the Broadening Participation Task Force is just one way that SCA is doing that. Yes, Natalia, that is correct. The Barney Participation Task Force stands ready to support the work required to fill these diversity gaps, which currently exist in agencies across the nation. And how, how are we standing ready and how have we positioned ourselves? We will continue to encourage effective partnerships, require open and honest dialogue. That's how you get it going. And having conversations about barriers, potential risks, budgets, successful leadership models, and preparedness of human capital are just a few areas for us to consider. Mm -hmm. I think and I just wanted to say that our focus really is, um, is on keeping the most significant federal resource front and center, and that's the federal workforce. We are the, it's important to remember the federal workforce is the largest employer in our country. And we really should be a model for what is equal opportunity and employment. And that is so important to have, you know, Margaret, you said it before, it all comes back to serving the public. And at the end of the day, we need a federal workforce that is representative of the people it serves. And that comes from not only acknowledging the biases of our institutions, but of ourselves as well. And Chad, I know you have some thoughts on how 
as we usher in new leaders and create a better system, we increase our you know training opportunities for identifying these biases. Um, Chad, would you like to speak to that? Yeah, thank you, Natalia. I I do think that there is a way to through some training and some coaching begin to mitigate some of these um, sort of racist systemic policies and, and actions that occur in the workplace. So we in PMA this year are advocating for um, microaggression training for the entire workforce. Um, and for those listeners who are like uninitiated, a microaggression are, are what offhand comments, things where Taken together, maybe you could get an EEO case made for a hostile work environment, but it would take you many years and a lot of documentation. Um, so I, an example that happens to me is I'm a member of the gay community, um, and so and I'm married, and someone at work may say, oh, well, you know, you're, you're friends. And, it's, and I correct them, like, my husband, do you mean my, my husband? Like, that's an example of a microaggression, where my, the person who's talking to me is just trying to be sensitive. They don't realize the inherent homophobia in the remark. Um, people need to be aware of what microaggressions are and how to spot them and how to, and how to call them out in a way that is, like, non-confrontational. But we all just want to be better because, it, like I said, it's an offhand remark that I think subtly or unintentionally, like maybe wasn't meant to be delivered in the way that it was. Um, that's our, my first thing. Um, I do believe that for leaders um, and management officials and executives, um, the IRS has a culture um, that's very fixated on personality assessments. Um, I think that we need to modify that to include implicit bias assessments and those implicit bias assessments should be repeated. Um, it should not be like when you first join management, you should have to like check yourself and if that's through a self-assessment or an IRS delivered training, that's fine. And then that, an implicit bias assessment, um, something that Margaret said to me um, was that you come in a zebra and you go out a zebra. And that's, that's my, favorite, my favorite way of talking about it because the assessment doesn't matter if it doesn't come then with some sort of anti-racism, like uh, deactivation or mitigation training. Um, once you've learned what your biases are, how can you overcome them? Um, and we call on the service to do that as well. And I think that's incredible. I think you're absolutely right. It's not just checking a box, but it needs to be that next step. And Alice, I know one thing we've discussed before is the problem with when these trainings are all virtual and you don't actually see someone and engage with them. So how do you think these trainings could be more effective to actually, you know, address some of these issues and not just be a check on the box like so many trainings are? Yes. As a practitioner, I have found that once you, a lot of people have gone to virtual training, computer-based training. So you don't have that personal touch. They don't get to really dissect or look at themselves to say, okay, you know what? Maybe I didn't handle that right, as Chad said. Ooh, did they have a second thought? Was that a slip of the tongue? How, until they can acknowledge that they have the bias, they can't address it. So people in training, people need to sometimes just take a, a self-assessment and look at themselves. Don't worry about what your neighbor or anybody else is 
what has Alice Mercer done? What is it about Alice Mercer that make her do what she does? Is it the right thing? Is she, what lens is she looking at this through? Has she tried to, have I tried to look at it through the other person's lens? Until we can have open and honest discussions in training, because, you know, I used to tell people, well, this is training. This is the place to say it. Because, see, if you can think it, but if you don't say it, we can't address it to help you understand how you should handle that or how you can overcome that. So people have to be honest with themselves first to recognize that they do have biases. Training should not be a check the a box just like a policy on a piece of paper is not enough. A policy is not enough. You have to implement, you have to work at it and to and work with people to improve it. This conversation I think has been a great start for a larger conversation that every, not only federal employee, but every American should be having about how they view race and discrimination and what that means for our society as a whole. I personally feel very lucky to have been able to sit down with this panel of guests today and to start this conversation. And we as a Fed Talk community, as I call us, um, we really are dedicated to doing more and to continuing these conversations. Margaret, Alice, Chad, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I highly encourage all of our listeners, if you're not familiar with Blacks in Government, the Senior Executives Association, and the Professional Managers Association, please take some time to dig further into the great work that is going on to make our federal workforce one that is truly representative of and in complete service to all Americans. Thank you guys so much for chatting with us today. And thank you to everyone who's listening uh, to Fed Talk this week. Once again, Fed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Thank you and have a great weekend.